Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series on the Augsburg Confession, today covering Article 4 on Justification. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Charlie Henriksen. He is pastor of St. Matthew Bonterre and Grace DeSoto in Missouri, and one of the former co-hosts of Concord Matters. Pastor Henriksen, great to have you back on Concord Matters. It feels like home, Sean. Yes. Actually, I brought this up when I've had you on before since I kind of just took over as the sole host. It's a little ironic because I started as a guest while you were hosting, yeah. you were very gracious to have me on. And then I feel a little bad that I just kind of took over, but not too bad because I enjoy doing the show. Well, I've got plenty on my plate with two congregations. And then I teach Greek and Latin online for CCLE. And I teach theology for Wittenberg Academy. So it's not like I'd, I'm just sitting around twiddling my thumbs. Yeah, well, and actually when the takeover was kind of implemented and so forth, you were also teaching up at uh, River Forest. Yeah, Concordia, Chicago there. So, uh, yeah, you're, you're an old guy that you still call it River Forest. But, uh, yeah, CTCRF when I started. Yeah. It's gone through several name changes. Yeah, so, but always a pleasure to have you back on, especially today to talk about this. I mean, this is what it's all about, right, for us as Lutherans. I mean, the chief doctrine, the yeah. article upon which the church stands and falls, we say, right, yes. justification. Right, yeah. This is the central teaching of the Christian faith. You know, Articulus Stantis Ecadentis Ecclesiae, the article of the standing and falling of the church. If you don't get this right, everything is off. And it's a very short article, and you would think it's sort of self-evident. And the Augsburg Confession goes into more depth on here are the reforms we've had to make. What they found out by the next year for the apology was the underlying issue dividing what we call the Lutherans from the Roman Church was this article of justification. That was what was underlying the errors in practice was this error in the fundamental doctrine of the faith. Yeah, and that's certainly been highlighted in some of the things that we've covered. The first three articles getting to here, and we're going to continue to cover in every article. I mean, just everything does come back to this. And so that's an excellent point to make. And I know that you're going to bring in some of the connections of how we get here from the previous articles as well. But let's just go ahead and start by reading the article in its entirety. So this is Article 4 from the Augsburg Confession on Justification. And just as a reminder, Of course, we use Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Once again, Article 4 from the Augsburg Confession, Justification. 
Our churches teach that people cannot be justified before God by their own strength, merits, or works. People are freely justified for Christ's sake through faith when they believe that they are received into favor and that their sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. By his death, Christ made satisfaction for our sins. God counts this faith for righteousness in his sight. Citing Romans 3 and 4 there. Thus far in its entirety, Article 4 of the Augsburg Confession on Justification. All right, Pastor Henriksen, go ahead and get us into this. Probably, I mean, we, we say this is the main thing. This is what we're you know, that article that is the chief doctrine for us, everything relates to this, everything comes back to this. But, you know, probably most listeners to a show like this have an idea of what justification means, but I think a good place to always start is with a base definition. What are we talking about when we're talking about justification? It means how people are declared righteous, that is, in right standing with God. Sometimes this term is used like in a courtroom metaphor, you're on trial. How is it that God, the righteous judge, can declare you not guilty? How can he call you right? And mainly, is it by our works in any extent, or is it outside of us entirely? That's the basic question. How are people declared righteous in God's sight? That's the issue. This article will reject error, and it will teach the truth. All right. So then with that as our definition, before we get to those two things that you want to highlight there and excellent things to highlight here, how it rejects error and confesses Confesses his truth. Yes. Great term for a show that seeks to confess, right? Uh, So uh, yeah, as it confesses truth, how did we get here in the Augsburg Confession to justification? Show us us that progression there. Well, this is Article 4, which means there's been an Article 1, 2, and 3. Very basic here. Article 1 is God, and what we teach is the Trinitarian faith. We're not some weird heretical sect. Our churches teach what's confessed in the ecumenical creeds, the Nicene Creed, for example. We believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the one true God, and we condemn all the heresies that deny the Holy Trinity. That's the first article, kind of very basic belief in the Orthodox faith, the true faith that confesses the Holy Trinity. Article two, this is where the problem enters in, is that human beings are born with this innate tendency to sin, called original sin, even this proclivity toward it, called concupiscence, that this is damnable sin. So it condemns us to death. So all human beings born the natural way are born with this sinful nature, even from conception. We are sinners from the get-go. And this is why everybody dies. And if this was all there was, every one of us would be damned and heading to hell. So how does that problem get fixed? Do we fix it ourselves or does God fix it for us? And in part or in whole. That's where we're going with this. Then Article 3 is about the person of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, true God and true man in one person. And then Article 3 says that Christ suffered, he truly suffered, was crucified, died, and was buried. And here's why he did this. He did this to reconcile the Father to us. 
we were estranged from God. We were alienated. We were his enemies, condemned righteously to death. And so this is the person and work of Christ in Article 3, which then is the basis for how God declares us righteous in Article 4. Absolutely. And I always think that it's great to start with that, again, that definition and that base level of this is how it progresses forth and what we see being confessed here and so forth. One of the interesting things, as you mentioned, the two things you want to highlight for us is the rejects error and then confesses truth. Some of the articles, most of the articles, I, I would say, have a, you know, we condemn such and right. such and so forth. And while, again, we've made it pretty obvious already, this is the big issue between Rome and the Lutherans. And yet there's none of that language here. And usually when we have that language, it comes at the end of an article. And so we cover it at the end. But yeah. you want to attack that first here. So how does this reject error? Well, and that's a good point. As you say, the normal structure in these articles is our churches believe, teach, and confess, and then it'll say what the truth is on various issues. And that says, we reject and condemn these errors that these heretical groups or sects have taught, so don't confuse us with them. We're not saying what they're saying. So here it's kind of doing it in a short form, condensed in the opposite direction, what we do not teach and then what we do teach. But it comes out the same way. Now, as I, we both said, this is a very short article, but when we get to the follow-up, the sequel, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, this is going to be the huge issue because Rome will disagree with what should be obvious here in Article 4, and the Lutherans then realize this is the underlying issue of all issues in the practices that we've had to reform the key issue is justification. So the first thing it does here is reject error. And it's in this sentence, our churches teach that people cannot be justified before God by their own strength, merits, or works. So that's what we reject. And then the rest of it is what we confess. And by the way, that's always a great way to do theology. So you're not being so vague State what you believe, but also then say what you're not saying, what you're rejecting. And that makes things clear. Yeah, absolutely. And it is interesting, and I, I'm interested on your thoughts more on this, of is Melanchthon, obviously the author of this, kind of tipping his hand a little bit here of, I realize this is going to be the big thing between us, right? As to why he starts with it here of what they reject. As you said, you know, it, it's very obvious in the sequel, as you said, the Apology, the yeah. Augsburg Confession. I think you were still one of the co-hosts when we read through and did the audio commentary on that. And I think it took us, what, like two years or something to work? It's immense. It's, it's, it's immense for sure. So, uh, yeah, give us a little more on how this rejects the error and, yeah, and kind yeah. of what your thoughts are on, on why I start here. Well, keep in mind, Augsburg Confession, June 25th, 1530. The Lutherans have been dealing with Rome on this for 12 to 13 years. I mean, we date the start of the Reformation October 31st, 1517, when Luther posted the 95 Theses against the sale of indulgences. But there's even more background. In fact, I think a couple of essays that Luther wrote 
before and after the 95 Theses really get at this issue even more thoroughly. There's a big background to this error of thinking that people can be justified before God by their own strength, merits, or works. This comes out of what Rome was teaching for a couple of centuries before the Reformation. The prevailing Roman Catholic theology was called scholasticism in the medieval church. And their key point was, and it's a technical sentence, it goes like this, to the one who does that which is within him, God does not deny grace. And uh, I mean, so well known, it's stated in the Latin, facienti quod in se est Deus non denegat gratiam. In other words, all right, you need God. The Roman Catholics would say you're saved by grace. They have a different understanding of that, even to this day. So how do you make yourself worthy to be a candidate to receive a shot of God's grace so you can better work out your own salvation? So they were saying, if you just do your best, do that which is within you, this sort of spark of divine goodness that everybody is born with, you just try your best and God is going to recognize that and you're going to be a candidate for his grace. So you're bringing something to the table. That was what these medieval Roman Catholic scholastic theologians were teaching, men like William of Ockham or just prior to Luther, a man named Gabriel Beale in Germany. This was their principle on which they said, why are some saved and not others? It's because some of us are better candidates for receiving God's grace. And so there you are contributing something to the equation. So this was what Luther was schooled in as a priest. And by 1517, even before the 95 Theses, a month and a half before, Luther published this essay called A Disputation Against Scholastic Theology, in which he rejects this fundamental error. And Luther had discovered this. He had been assigned to teach at the University of Wittenberg to teach the Bible. And even though he had been schooled in this medieval Roman Catholic scholastic theology, the more he taught the Bible, the more he saw that what the Bible teaches was not what Rome was teaching. And it changed his mind and changed his heart and it revolutionized everything. It was the basis for the Reformation. And so in 1517, in early September, this disputation against scholastic theology came out. And this was a month and a half before the 95 Theses. And he rejects the idea that if you just do that which is within you, that's your best preparation to receive God's grace. I'm just going to read, I think there's like 97 theses in this thing. So I'm just going to read four of them and uh, jump in if you want me to explain anything more. Thesis 29 in the Disputation Against Scholastic Theology. The best and infallible preparation for grace and the sole disposition toward grace is the eternal election and predestination of God. In other words, it's all what God does that prepares us for grace, not by doing that which is within us. And then in Thesis 30, he says, On the part of man, however, 
Nothing precedes grace except indisposition and even rebellion against grace. So Luther is rejecting the idea that we bring something to the table that makes us better candidates for grace. And then he takes on the Greek philosopher Aristotle. There had been a rediscovery of the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle in the Middle Ages, and Aristotle had some good things to say about our life in this world, what we might call civil righteousness, like keep on doing righteous deeds, you become a righteous man. And on the human level, there's some truth to that. But that does not equal justification before God. And so Luther says, we do not become righteous by doing righteous deeds, but having been made righteous, already righteous by God, we do righteous deeds. This in opposition to the philosophers. And then in Thesis 41, virtually the entire ethics of Aristotle is the worst enemy of grace. This in opposition to the scholastics. So according to our reason, it seems reasonable that if we just do our best, we're better than other people and God's going to reward us. That seems reasonable, but it's not what the Bible teaches. And Luther rejects that as our preparation for grace. It's interesting to me, I was thinking about as you were saying that common teaching there, more contemporary, there's the phrase, do your best and God will do the rest. Yes. Right? You might also tie in some of this idea that you hear a lot of times of God helps those who help themselves. Yeah. And then I was also thinking about, especially in connection with the uh, Aristotle and so forth there, that you still see these sorts of things play out in what we would call secular humanism and so forth, where they may even divorce the idea of God being involved at all, but that Basically, we still see this idea still permeating and dealing with it still today of it has to be something in me that begins this process, right? I mean, that just seems to be the predominant thinking in so many different aspects and very clearly what's going on here, right? Don't we call that the opinio legis, the opinion of the law? This is the basis for all natural religion, pagan religions. If my life is going bad, Uh, It must be the gods are displeased with me, and therefore I've got to work harder to please the gods. And if my life is going great, I must be doing something right. You see this in the news when a celebrity dies, like Betty White or somebody. Well, she was such a good person, and therefore if anybody's in heaven, she must be, or something like that. It's also the basis still today of Roman Catholicism that you're contributing to your own salvation, and ironically, revivalism. As you said, do your best and God will do the rest, or God's done his part, now you've got to do yours. I should say that with a Southern accent, I suppose. (laughs) But yeah, that comes naturally to us, right? That we think we can get on God's good side by what we bring to the table. Yeah. And so then as Luther is digging into the scriptures, I I love how you frame that for us, that, you know, he was schooled in scholasticism. And I bring that in simply because I can recognize even in my own schooling and education and so forth and upbringing, I mean, this stuff just permeates us in our culture everywhere around us. And so I've even been formed and shaped by a lot of those ideas. And yet it's the more time you spend in the Bible as Luther was teaching the Bible that you begin to realize, wait a minute, this cannot be the way it works. I have no hope that way. And we don't actually get any better with that kind of thinking anyway in the world. 
but here's the gospel and here's what the Bible teaches. And so I think it's great that that is already before the 95 Theses and where we date it, that's coming out here for Luther. Yes. See, this disputation against scholastic theology didn't get the play and the publicity that the 95 Theses did. That dealt with people's money and power. (laughs) And that was the one that caught everyone's attention a month and a half later. And so that was the talk of Europe, was Luther's 95 Theses against indulgences. It threatened the pocketbooks of Rome. So then Luther, as an Augustinian monk, that was the topic at their next convention or conference, theological conference, the following spring of April of 1518. And that's where we have Luther's famous Heidelberg disputation. And he has theses along the same lines. For example, number 18, it is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. You can see again this idea of being of what prepares you to receive God's grace. Thesis 25, he is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. And then the famous uh, Thesis 26, the law says do this and it is never done. Grace says believe in this and everything is already done. So this is so comforting that the pressure's off of you. It's everything to do with what Jesus has done for you. But we have this tendency to think, if I'm better than the bad guys, then God must be pleased with me, not recognizing how we sin, maybe not in the blatant ways that the child molesters or the looters or whatever, like they do, but we all sin in one way or another. And uh, like Jesus said to the Pharisees, who are hypocrites and proud, you're twice the child of hell than the bad people are, you know? Yeah. Well, and as you mentioned there too, that 95 Theses get all the attention because it deals with money, right? And it makes me also think of the examples where Jesus gives of, you know, the putting all the money in there, but it's the widow's might, you know, that that is actually done more in faith, right? Because it's not being done of like, look at how great, you know, and what we're accomplishing and so forth. And so this is a lot jam-packed in here with just that first line. Our churches teach that people cannot be justified before God by their own strength, merits, or works. You can't do it. You can't pay enough. You can't earn enough. It cannot be getting you. All of that focused here. And it's all rejecting the error that is commonly out there and still today. Right. Anything else you want to mention on this with just about a couple minutes here, and then we'll take a break. And then on the other side, we'll pick up confesses truth. Right. Anything else on rejecting error? Well, that'll come in also when we look at Romans 3 and 4, which the article mentions, because St. Paul explicitly rejects the idea that our works contribute in any way to our justification. So in confessing the truth in Romans 3 and 4, in the process, Paul throws out, rejects the idea that our works contribute in any way. And that's what led Luther to this rediscovery of the gospel that was always there, but had been obscured by medieval Roman Catholicism. Yeah. Do you want to mention any scripture passages that support this teaching as well? I mean, we always like to bring that in. Of course, there's the famous Ephesians passage and so forth. Yeah. I wanted to save most of that for later in the hour when we look at the Bible. But 
in Romans 3, so we conclude that a man is justified by grace alone. Luther would write the sola in there, apart from works of the law. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. All right, so that's what we're talking about here in rejecting error when we talk about Article 4 on justification. It's not in your works, but in Christ alone, by faith alone. And great Reformation background for us there. And we'll pick up on the other side of the break, how we confess the truth, not just reject error, but also confess the truth. And so we'll pick that up on the other side of the break with our guest, Pastor Charlie Hendrickson. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. The word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death, and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO, as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the Word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Concord Matters as we continue looking here at the Augsburg Confession, Article 4 on Justification, that chief doctrine, the article upon which the church stands or falls. And we're talking with our guest today, Pastor Charlie Hendrickson, who is pastor of St. Matthew Bonterre and Grace DeSoto in Missouri, also one of the former hosts here on Concord Matters. And Pastor Hendrickson, as we set up there just before the break, we talked about how that first line definitely rejects the error that was around at the time, being taught in the church at the time. We still see it around us today. And yet we don't want to just reject the error. It's important to reject the error. You made that point there very briefly in the first part. You know, sometimes people want us to just talk positively about things, you know, and we have the wrong idea of what it means to speak in the negative, but it is important to say, and this is where you're going to go astray. It's going to take you down a wrong path if you go that way. So it is important to reject the error. But then also this article very much as the rest of the Augsburg Confession seeks to confess truth. So how, how does this thing confess the truth for us? Let me get to that in a moment. But what you just said, that it's necessary to reject the error, this is how the Lutheran World Federation and the Roman Catholic Church, by not specifically rejecting error, could come to what they call the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification in 1999. By I call it vaguing out the words, making everything so vague, a big umbrella that everybody could fit under it. And the liberal Lutheran World Federation, like ELCA is a part of that. And to be clear, we are not We're in the not. Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate. Right. But they have this ecumenia where they want to get together with everybody. And they do that by not fully confessing truth and error, by making everything so vague that we can all fit under the same tent. And so Rome would say, yeah, sure, we're saved by grace. And the Lutherans would say, yeah, we're saved by grace. But a true Lutheran is coming at this with a different understanding of how we get God's grace than Rome does to this day. And so it's necessary to define your terms and to make clear what you mean by 
grace and how we get it. So when you don't do that, then you can get in bed with anybody theologically, you know? So here now, we're confessing the truth, having stated the errors that we've rejected. And so here now, the Article 4 says, people are freely justified for Christ's sake through faith when they believe that they are received into favor and that their sins are forgiven. And we'll just take that sentence here before we get there. Two more sentences here, but we'll just stay with that one for starters. But here it says, people are freely justified, meaning it's all a gift. You know, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's Romans chapter 7. So it's nothing that you earn. Then it's not a free gift. It's your wages. So here it's stating very clearly, people are freely justified. It's all a gift. You don't earn it freely justified for Christ's sake. So it has to do with who Jesus is and what he has done for us. It's not based on me or us in any extent. It's not 99% Jesus and 1% me. Then, since we can be sure of what Jesus has done, then it all comes down to my 1%. And then now I'm on shaky ground. I'll either become proud thinking, oh, I've done enough to earn my part, or I'm going to be led to despair, thinking, I can't be sure that I've done enough. So if we even contribute 1% to the equation, whether at the start to make ourselves candidates for God's grace, or at the end to uh, work out our salvation by our works, we're always either going to end up in pride or despair. And that's not a good place to be. Yeah, I think you know, connecting in with what you took us back to again there and the importance of rejecting the error, this is actually where it plays out, right? Because if, and it's good to want to have unity in the church. I mean, we all want that. Christ wants that for us. He prays for that, right? But if it's not a unity on the true confession of what God gives to us in his word, it, it just can't stand. And so this is where the joint declaration that you mentioned between the Roman Catholics and the, the liberal Lutheran World Federation and so forth. That's where this really hits the road here because, you know, a Lutheran would say, yeah, we're saved by grace alone, but it's alone, nothing from me, no works of me, right? And we have to reject that error that says even 1% or God begins it by his grace, but then I have to contribute to it. I mean, I use this on the show all the time. I use this in life all the time, but Sesame Street taught me the basics of this, right? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things doesn't belong. Obviously, you're not talking about being saved by grace the same way there. And so that's where being specific about what we're rejecting with this teaching does really become quite important, right? Yeah. So we want to be clear because, and there's this pastoral concern, because if people have the impression that they've got to do something to become a good candidate for God's grace, or that they've got to... Jesus did his part, now you've got to do yours. As I say, you're either going to end up proud and secure, like the Pharisees, or you're going to be ending up in despair, realizing you can never meet that standard of what the law demands. So for people's comfort and their assurance of salvation, we need to be absolutely clear on this. Right. 
And so obviously there's only one who has met that standard of the law. And that's the pure grace part of it, that it is none of my works, as we've just talked about, right? So get us into uh, how we also continue to confess this truth in that one who has done it all for us. Yeah, it says people are freely justified for Christ's sake. And then this little article will go on to say what Christ has done. But then this is received through faith when they believe that they are received into favor and that their sins are forgiven, again, for Christ's sake. So faith is not just some sort of vague thing, but it's very specific content. Faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, what he has done for you apart from your works. And we're going to get into that in a moment. But faith has no value. It's not like by my heroic faith in whatever, faith in myself, it's very specific. And It's not a justifying work that I do. It's latching on to Christ. And faith has saving value by virtue of its object, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's why we can say say we're saved by grace. We can say we're saved through faith. We can say we're saved through Christ, as long as it's meaning the same thing there, that faith is clinging to Christ and his cross and not in ourselves. Yeah, I, I like how. You see it very clearly here in this article. You'll see it very clearly in the next article. And in a lot of the articles, it continually harps on this point for Christ's sake, right? This is for Christ's sake. And it all directs us on Christ, which is what, as you've said already, we true Lutherans are all about, right? Yeah, and that ties back directly to Article 3, which is all about the person and the work of Christ. You know, Jesus sets the pattern for our preaching in uh, Luke 24, and this has guided every sermon I've ever preached, like all 2,000 of them over the years. Luke 24, verses 44 through 47. This is Jesus meeting with the disciples on Easter, and he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All right, so he's saying the Old Testament, it's all about me, and I fulfilled all of it. And then it says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus hermeneutic, if you want to put it that way, his lens through which he views the scripture is, it's about himself and about who he is as the Christ and what he has done, centering in his suffering, death, and resurrection. And then how that applies to people is by preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Realize that you're a sinner, but you're not lost. Come to Christ, believe in him, and you will receive the forgiveness of sins. That shapes and guides all true Christian teaching and preaching, right there from the words of Jesus. So we are forgiven for Christ's sake. And then in the article, four, the next line goes on to say, why for Christ's sake? What has he done? By his death, Christ made satisfaction for our sins. So what Jesus did on the cross, atoned, paid for, satisfied God's justice 
because we're all sinners. Christ is not. He's the one sinless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What he did by shedding his holy blood on the cross for the sins of the world, that's how our sins are forgiven. What Jesus did makes satisfaction for our sins. The idea of satisfaction is it satisfies God's justice. God's law says that the one who sins shall die. Remember, he said that to Adam, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what is going to satisfy God's justice? The sinner must die. But Jesus takes our sins on himself, and he pays the punishment that God's justice demands. So Jesus makes satisfaction for our sins so that it's not on us anymore. In talking that way there, it satisfies his justice. That relates back to what you began us with in this courtroom language is the way that we look at justification. And I had it taught to me when I was growing up and heard lots of faithful pastors talk about, you know, kind of there's these ideas about justification out there and it kind of boils down to two main ones, right? It's either like a bank account, right, that you can draw from, and that's kind of what's going on with the Roman Catholics, and I would say is still present in American evangelicalism and other ideas out there still today, other church bodies and so forth out there still today. But then the other idea of justification is this courtroom language. And I bring that up just simply because that final line there, God counts this faith for righteousness in his sight. That could sound like accounting language, and you might think of that bank kind of mentality. And so, you know, kind of say, well, yeah, it counts for this, but does it fully account for it and so forth? But I think we got to be clear of what it's saying here in this last line about how God counts this faith for righteousness. So go ahead and get us into that. Yeah. And this will come in when we look at Romans 3 and 4. The terms that are used here, what Rome teaches is infused grace. Gratia infusa, that God gives you a shot of grace, a booster shot, whatever, so that you can, with your strength, do your best of good works and love and so forth to get you on the road. And maybe you have to spend less time in purgatory. And if the saints, with their extra merits, can help you out, maybe you might get saved at some point. Lutherans do not teach gratia infusa. We teach imputed grace, and it is accounting language. Paul uses this, logizomai, in Romans 3 and 4. Luther would call this the happy exchange, the blessed exchange. Jesus gets our sins, we get his righteousness, and it's a free exchange. We don't do anything to earn it. So God justifies us. He declares us not guilty because The punishment that we deserve has been paid, and the righteousness we need has been credited to our account. It is accounting language, but in the right way. Um, It's a full accounting. Full accounting, yeah. Yeah, Full full. As opposed to just drawing parts of it. Right, or that you need more indulgences or something. Yeah, that infusion that you talked about. Yeah, yeah. And I guess we can get into Romans 3 and 4 here since the article itself gets into this. Uh, How much time do we have left, Sean? Oh, sure. Please do. Yeah, we have about 15 minutes left. Good. Well, let's get into this. And Romans, the book of Romans, when Luther would teach that, that's what opened his eyes, Romans and Galatians especially, 
on this matter of justification. This is why all of our pastors who go through Master Divinity, it was the case when I went to the SEM, we are required to take a course in either Romans or Galatians because those were the books that most made it clear the doctrine of justification in our church. You took Romans or Galatians. I'm oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and not to play off of something that we just condemned, but it was also infused in all of the other classes as well, yes, right? right. So. Yeah, I had a whole class called Justification by Faith with, we called him Young Jack Price, but he's as old as I am. We're born in the same month. <laughs> and that was that justification is at the center of all the articles of doctrine, and it is the center of each article of doctrine. That was what I I took out of that course, especially. And the center of how they form and shape us as pastors right, for our work, right? right? Yeah. So let's look at the context in Romans. The article itself mentions Romans 3 and 4. Again, let's set that up. So Romans chapter 1, the theme verse is Romans 1, 16 and 17, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, that is, in the gospel, the good news of Christ, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this concept of the righteousness of God, the way it was weighing upon Luther was the righteousness that God demands. And I don't love God enough. That was what Luther you know, when uh, Staupitz said, well, go ahead, confess your sins, he says, I can't be forgiven. I don't love God because he only saw God as this judge. So is this the righteousness that God demands in the law or is it the righteousness that God bestows freely in the gospel? That is the central issue here. And so right after that theme passage, Romans 1, 16 and 17, then St. Paul goes on in Romans 1.18 through chapter 3, verse 20, showing that both Gentiles and Jews, none of us are righteous by the law. Whether we have the law on stone tablets from Mount Sinai, like the Jews have, or whether we have the law written on our hearts, this knowledge that there's right and wrong behavior, like the Gentiles have, either way, we're condemned as sinners. And so then Paul concludes that prosecuting attorney case with a chain of quotations from the Old Testament in chapter 3, basically saying, for none is righteous, no, not one. So the law, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, cannot justify you before God. None is righteous, no, not one. And then he says in Romans 3, 19, now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So if you're using the law the wrong way to think that that can get you right with God, you're barking up the wrong tree. What the law's purpose there is to show you, you have not kept God's standard and that it gives you the knowledge that you're a sinner, which is important, which is necessary so that you give up on yourself. But are we lost? No, we can find, we can know righteousness. We can have the righteousness of God, 
not by our works, but through the gospel. And he says, going on there in 321 through 328, for example, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, there it is, that word, pronounced righteous, declared righteous, by his grace, freely. You can see how this passage is informing Article 4 of the AC here. Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is pulling out all the big words here. Justification, redemption, which means being set free from your bondage by a price being paid through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, here's a fancy word, propitiation by his blood, meaning like an atoning sacrifice, recalling like the day of atonement in the tabernacle or the temple, that Christ fulfills that by his holy blood to be received by faith. All right? So this is where the gospel reveals how we are right with God, not by our works, but by Christ's works. And it also shows how God can be a just judge. You know, it's not by simply winking at sin or sweeping it under the rug, pretending sin doesn't exist or the punishment doesn't have to be paid. No, God is a just judge. So how can he declare Sean Smith or Charlie Henriksen not guilty in his courtroom? He would be a terrible judge if he just said, well, I'm a softy old grandpa, and Sean, you've got a nice beard there, and you're a good-looking guy, and so you're set free. No, he'd be a terrible judge there. So the righteousness has to be fulfilled, the punishment has to be paid, and the good news is, it ain't on me. It's what Jesus has done entirely. And so then it says here, it was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, a just judge, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the one who believes and trusts in Jesus, not in himself, you are set free from death because Jesus has already done that for you and it's credited to your account. And so Paul here says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And now as far as this accounting business, in chapter 4, verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that's me, that's you, his faith is counted as, credited as, accounted as righteousness. Not because you're some great believer, but because it's trust in the one Savior, Jesus Christ, whose righteousness, perfect righteousness, is given to you as a gift. Yeah, I mean, that accounting language, again, is set up by all of that courtroom language that makes it clear that it's not a cash flow problem because there's not a single one of your works. I mean, you, there's just nothing you can do. And so if it is to use the language I just used, a cash flow problem, then it's you can't generate any cash. Yeah. And so if you want to use the bank analogy or whatever, then it's just you're broke. As a matter of fact, you're in debt and it's going to take someone else to just completely satisfy that. You know, and here we get these words like salvation, redemption, justification, imputed righteousness. These are all ways to talk about the same truth. 
When I was in graduate school, I mentioned Professor Jack Preuss. As a grad student, I was a research assistant for him for a year, and this was when he was working on his book called Just Words. And this came out of the course I took with him, that the Bible will use different, what we might call metaphors, images, to talk about the same truth. And you might have the word justification, which recalls a courtroom. You might have the word redemption, which talks about being released from a state of bondage by a price being paid. New birth, you know, being born from above. There are different images, ways of speaking that the Bible uses to talk about this same central truth of justification. Absolutely. Do you want to bring in here some of those other ways that the Bible talks about this in other passages? Yes. I just jotted down a few of these highlights. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, famous verse where it says, For our sake he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ took our sin. He embodied sin on the cross. He became sin. And like the lightning rod, he took the punishment so that we get his righteousness. That's a beautiful way. So we're reconciled. We're brought back to God. Uh, Look at Galatians 3, verse 11, where it says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So here it's trust in Christ. That's how we're justified, not by what we do to keep the commandments. Should we try to keep the commandments? Sure, of course. God wants us to love and to do good works, but that's after you're saved. That's with the new spirit that you've been given, but that doesn't contribute to your salvation or even keeping you in your salvation. But then the big one that I like also is Ephesians chapter 2. Here you get long gospel in one great passage. So Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, start with our starting point of being dead. We're dead in our sins. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You can't paint a bleaker picture than that. The devil, the world, our own sinful flesh, we're dead. And last I seen, a dead man cannot raise himself. Now here's where it changes in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we all were dead. By nature, we're born with this sinful nature. We can't do anything to raise ourselves up. But God raised us up with Christ. And so we're joined to Christ through what God has done for us in the gospel, through baptism, 
through the preaching of the good news. This is how God's powerful word, his powerful word, raises us from the dead spiritually. And there Paul says, by grace you have been saved. And then he'll repeat this in verses 8 and 9, very famous verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's so nice he said it twice. He's repeating this, both the truth and what the opposite is, not of works. No one can boast. Couldn't be any clearer. Only a few minutes left here. So a couple more things I want to get to before we have to wrap up today. Obviously, there's a lot to talk about here when it comes to justification. It's going to continue to permeate everything that we address as we go through the Augsburg Confession and indeed in the church. First thing that I'd like to get before we have to wrap up, it's a tough task because, again, it took us a couple years to get through (laughs) the apologies response in Article 4. But just briefly summarize for us, if you could, how did the Romans respond to this? uh, The Roman Catholic Church respond to this confession of this Article 4? And then how did the Lutherans respond back to that as well? Yeah. So after the Augsburg Confession was presented on June 25th, 1530, the Roman theologians came back with what they call the pontifical confutation, the Roman confutation, in which they agreed with some things the Lutherans said, but rejected the main points. So here, I'm looking now briefly at the Apology where Melanchthon starts out in Articles 4, 5, 6, and 20, they condemn us for teaching that, quote, people obtain forgiveness of sins not because of their own merits, but freely for Christ's sake through faith in Christ. They condemn us both for denying that people obtain forgiveness of sins because of their own merits and for affirming that through faith people obtain forgiveness of sins and are justified through faith in Christ. But in this controversy, the chief topic of Christian doctrine is treated. When it is understood correctly, it illumines and amplifies Christ's honor. So if you don't get this right, the twofold refrain in Article 4 and in the Apology is you're diminishing the honor due only to Christ, and you're depriving troubled consciences of the comfort that they need. So It doesn't give glory to Christ, which it should, and it doesn't help people who are going to be led into either pride or despair if you don't get this right. All right. And then the other one I want to hit before we have to wrap up here in just about a minute or so, and as you brought in earlier, that's a pastoral care concern that you just brought up there too, is the troubled consciences, and that's going to permeate some of the other topics and things that we take up, namely what's coming next in the next article and so forth. So How does this article set up what's coming for us in the Augsburg Confession? Very good. Yeah, and the connection between Article 4 and 5 is so easy to see because we've just been talking about justifying faith in Christ. And so then Article 5 says, so that we may obtain this faith, the ministry of teaching the gospel and ministering the sacraments was instituted. So you could say Article 4 of the Augsburg Confession would be equivalent to the second article of the Apostles' Creed, you know, that redemption in Christ. Article 5 of Augsburg is like unto the third article of the Apostles' Creed, how the Holy Spirit works through the means of grace 
to give us this faith in Christ our Savior. So it's a very tight connection here between Articles 4 and 5. And when the Lutherans get in Articles 21 through 28 of Augsburg, where we had to make some reforms, what they'll see in another year is underlying all of those reforms in penance, in uh, the sacrifice of the Mass, whatever. The underlying issue is this doctrine of justification. Absolutely. You also mentioned in the Apology there, too, that It's connected in with Article 5 and 6, and 6 is on new obedience, which we've referenced as well, to where the works rightly come in, rightly understood. Yeah, Lutherans are falsely accused of being against love and good works. We're not. But don't rely on that for your justification. That's the result. That's the outflow of your justification and receiving the Holy Spirit. All right. Well, next week we'll look at Article 5 on the ministry as Pastor Henderson just set up there for us. Thank you, Pastor Charlie Henderson, for joining us again for Concord Matters today and teaching the Lutheran Confession of Justification from Article 4 of the Augsburg Confession. Great honor to have you back on the show again. Thank you. Is there anything better to delight in than this wonderful gospel news? Not at all. There isn't. It's great. Thanks, Thanks, Sean, for the invite. All right. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.